This is the Mathematics Education Podcast from MathEdPodcast.com. Welcome to the Math Ed Podcast. My name is Sam Martin from the University of Missouri, and with me today is Raymond Johnson, who's a Ph.D. candidate in the School of Education at the University of Colorado. Raymond, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Sam. We're going to be talking about a recent article that Raymond has published uh, in the Journal of Mathematics Teacher Education. It's available online right now, and that article is called Teachers, Tasks, and Tensions, Lessons from a Research Practice Partnership. But before we get to that article, um, we get to have some fun to talk about Raymond's graduate studies, and he's right now working on the dissertation, finishing up the dissertation, so he's right at the end of his Ph.D. program. But how has that Ph.D. program been for you, and who have you been working with there at the University of Colorado? The Ph.D. program really has been a wonderful experience for me. It was something I always wanted to do from the end of my undergraduate days, and after six years of teaching high school and getting good at some things, but having a lot of questions about how to get better at other things, it was time to go to grad school. So fortunately, Mm -hmm. I met David Webb here at the University of Colorado, who's my advisor, and he helped me get into the program. And I've had a chance to work with a lot of other wonderful faculty members on research projects and in my coursework. Mm -hmm. And what are you focusing on for your dissertation right now? My dissertation focuses on how teachers perceive affordances of mathematical tasks in relations to the standards for mathematical practice and how their pedagogical design capacity develops over time as they engaged in a task rating routine. And that work is a specific part of the bigger project, which was also the focus of this paper. Mm -hmm. So let's uh, talk about that project a little bit. Um, There's a research practice partnership there at the University of Colorado, and the JMTE article that we're going to be talking about um, digs into some of the tensions and thinks very carefully about the roles and things that are happening in that partnership. So just let us know um, the background of that research practice partnership. Yes, we call the partnership Inquiry Hub, uh, the name given it in our current round of NSF funding, but the partnership goes back to around 2008. The key players in this partnership are researchers from the University of Colorado. We have some digital librarians, digital learning scientists, I'll call them, from the University Corporation for Atmospheric Research, and our key partners in Denver Public Schools. And back in 2008, the science curriculum coordinators at Denver Public Schools wanted to implement a new digital science curriculum, but they didn't have an ideal way to house the curriculum and to distribute it and to let teachers make modifications to it. So the beginning of the partnership was to create new online tools for teachers to customize and organize and modify this digital earth science curriculum. Starting in about 2012, when I came onto the project, the focus of the partnership shifted to math curriculum, specifically helping Algebra One teachers make adjustments to their practice and the curriculum that they were using in line with the Common Core State Standards. The math work lasted for a couple years, and now the partnership has shifted towards the creation from scratch of a new digital high school biology curriculum. 
So we have this eight-year partnership that works on different areas of STEM curriculum. And early it was modifying. The math work was more about teacher professional development and adjusting standards. And now we're doing this biology curriculum creation from scratch. Hmm. Now, um, focusing in on the mathematics portion, when you were there as a math educator um, working on the tasks and curriculum thinking specifically with algebra, you brought in a framework called the Design Tensions Framework. And so I'm curious, where did that framework come from? Like, how did you as a team think to use that framework to kind of understand what it was that you were doing in this partnership? And then if you can just let us know, what are kind of the main components or ideas of that Design Tensions Framework? Well, one of the co-PIs on the project, one of the co-authors on this paper, is Bill Penuel. Bill and others have written about an approach to research called design-based implementation research. And in a lot of ways, that's really what we see ourselves doing. We're trying to work with the school district to implement something research-based and to do so in a design-based manner. But we realize design research does have some limitations, and it's a rather new approach compared to other approaches of education research. And so we look for tools to help guide the work. So in choosing the design tensions framework, we're choosing it over an alternative like uh, design spaces. Design spaces really focus on the different permutations of all the different design choices you might make given the variables you feel you can control. But design tensions really focused our thinking around goal balancing instead of just problem solving. And in a partnership where we really want to value equal participation amongst the different stakeholders in the partnership, this idea of goal balancing is quite important. So Deborah Tater's design tensions framework gave us a way of looking at tensions in the partnership where it's not necessarily about solving problem, it's more about seeking out optimal compromises. Hmm. So Deborah Tater breaks the framework into four levels, and at the highest level uh, relates to project vision and really gets at the tension in design between what is and what ought to be. Hmm. And below that, then you have approach tensions. These are really the project drivers that take into account the capacity of different project members to do certain things, the resources available, and the values that people hold. The third level of the framework gets at project-level tensions. And really, the project-level tensions, I think, are what most people think about as the true design work. Mm -hmm. So in our case, it was the development of a new rubric and tensions that arose with it. But then the choices made in the project around different design options generally lead to as created situations where tensions arise because of choices and then you have to deal with the consequences of those choices and sometimes you have new tensions from those. So those are the four levels, the vision, the approach, the project level tensions and as created tensions. Hmm. So using that framework and looking at your own work in the Research Practice Partnership and, um, again, with your co-authors, Samuel Severance, um, Bill Penuel, and Heather Leary, what was it that you were able to see from your own analysis of your work um, dealing with mathematics tasks and curriculum work in the partnership? 
This is where I really have to give Sam Severance some credit because from day one on this project, while I was focused on math content, he was the graduate student really focused on equity and the partnership and where these tensions were popping up and then being mm. able to inform us in real time in the design where he saw you know, the need to make compromises around some of our project decisions. Thankfully, at the vision level, at the vision level, the partnership was pretty unified hmm. around the need to create a better aligned curriculum and better prepared teachers to teach Algebra 1 in a way that's aligned with the Common Core State Standards. And really, I'm not sure. If there are sustained tensions at the vision level, I have a feeling that's very hard for a partnership to proceed when there are tensions there. So thankfully, we had mm -hmm. very few tensions there. Yeah, I think there are tensions there in math education broadly across the nation. But maybe if you're going to partner up, the reason you've partnered up is hopefully that you have a shared vision. Yes, and it, it says something about the partnership in that you know, we were creating this vision for what to do with Algebra 1 with people who we had collaborated with for four years prior. Mm -hmm. And when you have that sort of sustained relationship with the curriculum leaders in a school district, it's easier to get everybody moving in the right direction. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't necessarily mean there weren't tensions at other levels. Right. So when we looked at the approach tension, you know, the first six months or so of this project was really negotiating the direction of this work to do with Algebra 1 teachers. So at the approach level, the direction we ended up going, the compromise we made, was to create a task analysis routine for Algebra 1 teachers to look at the at various qualities of mathematical tasks. Mm -hmm. I think early on, some of us on the research side were, you know, thinking, you know, maybe we could push the research envelope a little bit and see how maybe teachers sequence tasks in ways related to their visions for learning progressions. That was a, a suggestion I remember us making. But then the district pushed back a little bit and said, you know, we've done a little bit of work with cognitive demand. And we've seen how that might be of value. What if we build that out as part of a broader task rating routine that includes other district priorities like academic language for English language learners? So over the course of several months, there was a negotiation between uh, the researchers and the district curriculum leaders over what qualities to pay attention to. The ones that we decided on were alignment to Common Core content, the standards for mathematical practice, cognitive demand as described by Smith, Stein, and others, language, the language of mathematical tasks, and technology. There were other ones that were suggested. For a while, we had hoped to maybe have teachers look at the cultural relevance of a task, hmm. but through discussions, it was decided that that's really something that needs to be part of a teacher's individual planning process for their particular students. It wasn't something we could do in general with teachers from different parts of the city, teaching different students in different populations. And so those are a little bit of the, the compromises we made to get down to our list of six qualities to mm -hmm. pay attention to when looking at mathematical tasks. Mm-hmm. So having worked through and identified those six areas of focus, uh, were there further tensions down the line? Yes. 
after the few months of working with the district leaders to come up with our list and to come up with some rubrics or other categorization or quality selection guides, we had a full day meeting with our teacher advisory board, the name we gave to this group of teachers who were recruited to help us further design this routine uh, for task grading. And it was evident from the very beginning that the language rubrics that we tried to create were, were just not working. We were trying to put too much into too small of a framework or into a single framework. And there, were, there was just a lot of difficulty getting any agreement on the rubric. And in the paper, I really talk about that as the, the primary project level tension was the iterations of the language rubrics that we went through. And some of the problem was us on the research side trying to use particular terms in the language rubrics that were misaligned with other language initiatives in the district. And that's yeah. one of the interesting things you get to when you do implementation research is that a big challenge of the implementation is thinking about teachers' instructional realities. And so even though we weren't necessarily privy to all these other initiatives in the district, the teachers had participated in other professional development and they knew what the other policies were. So through them, we had to understand how the rubrics we were creating were misaligned with other work coming from the district. Mm -hmm. So as a project tension, we identified the language rubrics and the development of these language rubrics and all those iterations as, as, as a tension that carried out in the project. But then another tension that we saw right away and we saw sustained through the first year of the project, at least, was something we considered an as-created tension. And that was this analyzing tasks as written versus tasks as modified. And to explain a little further about what I mean by that, so you can imagine in the very first professional development, we gave teachers a task and had them rate it for cognitive demand. And you get a teacher asking a question like, well, I'm not sure what level of cognitive demand to give this. Is this a task for my honors students or is this a task for my regular level students? Or another teacher saying, well, is this a task for my first period class or my last period class? Or another mm -hmm. teacher saying, is this a task I would let students use calculators on or not use calculators on? And for us, we had a goal of creating this task rating routine that teachers would really look at the task itself and not think necessarily about how they would teach it to a particular group of students or how they might modify the task in their own use. And in some ways, this makes sense. You know, we want a task rating routine that leads to consensus. Looking for teacher learning through consensus the same way Paul Cobb might look for student learning around socio-mathematical norms and looking for consensus in that way. But, of course, we can't fault teachers for being tied to their classrooms and tied to their students and thinking about the choices they would make around these tasks. And that was a tension that's not easily resolved. One way we did try to adjust to this tension, so we have this tool called the Curriculum Customization Service that houses all the district's Algebra One curriculum in addition to these high-quality tasks teachers were rating. 
And initially, we thought we could just say, oh, this task is rated at doing mathematics for cognitive demand, and this other task is procedures without connections. But over time, we realized it would really be better to show a distribution of teacher task ratings. Mm -hmm. Just to reflect that there is disagreement and teachers are going to interpret task qualities differently depending on their own experiences and their own contexts. My guest is Raymond Johnson, who's a Ph.D. candidate in mathematics education at the University of Colorado. And we're speaking about his article in JMTE called Teachers, Tasks, and Tensions, Lessons from a Research Practice Partnership. And what really strikes me overall, Raymond, is how much thought and care was given to how this partnership is working. It wasn't just we're going to do the work and assume that things are going well. It's really a lot of reflection on how it's working, um, if it's working for all parties involved, Um, And just a lot of depth over the years, uh, it comes out in the paper and in the way that you're speaking about it, of really thinking about if this project is achieving what it was sort of the goals of the original project set out to achieve. So having done all that reflection and this analysis, thinking about the tensions and how the tensions might be overcome or not, uh, if there's some that are insurmountable and so forth, have you sort of personally taken some things forward with you from this project and from this analysis that is going to inform your future self in any of the work that you do with future teachers or districts? The work in this project does really have me thinking more about balancing the needs of various stakeholders and the instructional realities in which teachers work. And I'm glad some of that comes across in the paper because we certainly could have written a paper that just looks like, oh, here's another cognitive demand task analysis paper. Mm-hmm. But the big part of this paper that, you know, if anything that makes it a little bit different is this continued involvement from district curriculum leadership and the negotiations with them as well as with teachers over the course of this professional development. So when I think about future work with districts, and future work with teachers, it doesn't necessarily give me easy solutions, but it does raise my awareness of, you know, what what are teachers' needs in their particular school? What are the policies that are either complementing or maybe in some ways interfering with the goals that I might have as the researcher or the professional developer? And, and we continue to see this in the project. Even though the project has now moved on to biology curriculum, one tension we currently have is that looking at the next generation science standards and 3D assessments, we're doing some assessment work with teachers, and it's generally agreed that the assessment items we have are very high quality, but yet within the buildings of some of the teachers, they have sort of a school-wide approach to doing assessments or they have technological systems to implement assessments in ways that just aren't fitting necessarily with the 3D assessment approach. Mm -hmm. So then that causes us to seek out other stakeholders like building level leaders or other curriculum leaders or sometimes technological uh, support staff in the district to see, you know, how can we make our assessment goals for this research project align with the the needs and limitations of building level goals and department level goals within a school. Hmm. 
And this work also is done with a partnership. And I know for you that word partnership, it construes some different things than the phrase professional development. Do you want to say a little bit about that? You know, as a teacher myself, I, I definitely had my share of seeing the professional developer come in for the single day to talk to us about things. And sometimes you took away things of value. Sometimes you didn't. But there's sadly a, just a lot of evidence in education that some of these translational attempts at turning research into practice by having somebody come in, translate the research, tell you what it means, mm -hmm. make suggestions for how to change your practice. Um, when that's not done in a sustained way, we just have a lot of evidence that that doesn't make lasting practice in the classroom. Mm -hmm. With partnerships, again, it's not it's not the silver bullet, but you know you see things happened in sustained ways when you sustain the work. So by meeting weekly with people from the district and our other partners, you know we've been able to see how this task rating routine, even though maybe it didn't grow to the potential that we all imagined it might have, we do see in the district as part of their routine professional development rating of tasks for cognitive demand and other qualities. So in some way, the district was able to take that work and establish something in a way that will continue on. And we pay a lot of attention to the, the tools and the routines that we develop because they have some permanence, which is particularly important in districts with high turnover uh, which seems to be most of the districts people work with, that even as personnel change, you know, the person who may have been there for that one-day professional development, even as personnel change, you hope that the tools and routines people deal with and have available to them add to the institutional memory of a place that allows some of this implementation work to sustain itself over time. Mm-hmm. My guest is Raymond Johnson from the University of Colorado, and I should also say Raymond Johnson from the Colorado Department of Education. I know you now have a position there as the math content specialist, so congratulations on that. Well, thank you, Sam. I'm happy to be in the new job, and they're very kind at the moment to be letting me uh, handle my state responsibilities on a part-time basis because as educators themselves in the Department of Education, they realize that finishing a Ph.D. takes time. And it's very important work, so my thanks to them for making the onboarding process as a state employee a, a gentle one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's great, and good luck in that new position. Um, I also want to ask you, if you were not in that position and were actually not in mathematics education at all, what might you see yourself doing instead? You know, as a longtime listener of this podcast. Every time this question comes up, I have to think it through in my head. And <laughs> now more than ever, I feel like maybe my talents are just being wasted. That <laughs> that so often I think maybe I should be a librarian. Hmm. Like I work with some of the librarians here on campus and particularly like we have a librarian that deals with scholarly communications that runs our open access repository. And mm. to me, I just feel like that might be the best job in the whole world. Mm -hmm. And another reason I think maybe I'm missing my chance at being a librarian, sometimes to my credit, often to my own detriment, I tend to pay attention and care about 
how data is stored and shared and made available and cataloged more than I care about what's in the data. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's so many times as a graduate student, somebody will bring up an idea from a paper and I know I'm fuzzy on the idea, but my mind's pretty razor sharp on like remembering whether or not that paper had a DOI or mm-hmm. you know what journal it was from or whether it was open access or not or who the authors were. So mm-hmm. I'm really good with, I'm better with the metadata than the data. Mm-hmm. And for me, librarians get to deal with a lot of metadata. So maybe someday in the future, it'll give me an excuse to go back to school and I can pursue my dreams of becoming a librarian. Mm-hmm. Well, one way that you maybe scratch that itch a little bit is through mathed.net. And I wanted to actually give a little plug for mathed.net. Um, you're the creator and caretaker of that website. So I wanted to know if you wanted to say anything to the listeners about that resource. Sure. You know, I'd started blogging in 2001 after having created my own website in college 20 years ago when Blogger came out. I thought, oh, this is amazing. This is an easy way to put content online. And I tried blogging a little bit as a teacher, but when I came to graduate school, I thought, okay, a big reason I'm in graduate school was to get on the greener side of the academic paywall. And it was to relieve myself of the frustration of looking for research on teaching that I didn't have to pay for. Right. So I thought, well, if I'm going to get on the sunny side of the, the street here, I need to be sharing with teachers and with everybody what I'm finding. So that's yeah. what drove me to, to start the blog, mathed.net. And blogging's great, and I've picked up and been doing it more recently, which feels good. But also along the way, I decided to create a wiki that I really felt like um, some research articles need summaries that, to me, they just felt more natural on a wiki where one article could link to another, could link to another in a Wikipedia-style fashion rather mm-hmm. than just being some blog post I wrote a few years ago. So mathed to, mathed.net to me is the blog and the wiki and the separate Twitter account I created for myself for my professional activity and it works both ways that through through online and social media activity uh, I feel like it's a way I get to contribute Mm -hmm. in a way that's a little bit more freeing than trying to contribute through the traditional academic literature Um, but it's also a wonderful way to listen you know there are a lot of teachers out there with a lot of things to say and I get a lot out of conversing with them and reading their blogs and replying to their tweets and and it's something in my new job at the Colorado Department of Education that I, that I hope to continue there. Uh, the mm-hmm. sharing and the listening using whatever technological means we currently have or what means might come our way. Yeah. Well, I think it's great and I encourage the listeners to check out mathed.net if you haven't already. And Raymond, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us about your work. Yes, thanks for having me on, Sam.
Thank you for listening to this episode of the MathEd Podcast. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, please use the PayPal donation button at mathedpodcast.com.